Our Father, we pause at this moment in the silence of your presence to center ourselves on you, to recognize that you are here and that you desire to speak to your people today through your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we do quiet ourselves before you and we make ourselves to be attentive to your word your word which is living and active, and may it pierce us on this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So whenever I come to this passage in the Gospels, I am reminded of the story of Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems was a Dutch Protestant who lived in the middle of the 1500s at the height of the Protestant Reformation. He lived at a time that was very tumultuous uh, in the history of Europe, where in that, that same century, in the early 1500s, 1517, Martin Luther, the great reformer, had nailed his 95 theses to the door of the, the castle church at Wittenberg in Germany. And it sparked this entire revolution, this reformation, this thing that we call the Protestant Reformation, as he, he spread theological reform throughout the countries in Western Europe. It was a tumultuous time. There was a lot of debate that was happening at this time, but there was also a great movement of God through the actions of these reformers, through their faithfulness, the faithfulness of Martin Luther or John Calvin, who was faithful and active in the city of Geneva in Switzerland, or people like Ulrich Zwingli or Martin Busser or Heinrich Bullinger, John Knox, Thomas Cranmer, and the list goes on and on and on. All these great reformers, these great pastors and theologians who were setting out to reform the church. It was also a very violent time. As the followers of these reformers and the followers of their counter-reformers on the other side would fight with one another violently. They would go to war with each other. The Catholics were fighting the Lutherans and the Lutherans were fighting the Calvinists and the Calvinists were fighting the Catholics and everybody was fighting the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists. Dirk Willems was an Anabaptist. The Anabaptists were the forerunners of what we know as the Mennonites and the Amish. That is the legacy of the Anabaptists in our country, the Mennonites and the Amish. And at this time in the 1500s, they were persecuted by everybody. They were persecuted by Catholics and Lutherans and Calvinists and Zwinglians. Everybody seemed to be persecuting the Anabaptists at this time in the 1500s. And they were persecuting them because Anabaptists denied the validity of infant baptism. You see, everybody else at this time believed that infant baptism was perfectly fine. It was a long tradition of the church going back to the early days of the apostles even. And, and they, they just that was part of their culture and their tradition, their understanding of baptism. But the Anabaptists, in their reading of scripture, came to the conclusion that infant baptism is not a valid baptism. But in fact, you have to be baptized as an adult believer. You need to have this conversion experience and to be able to testify to your faith. That's what Anabaptists believed. And that's what Dirk Willems believed. And he was persecuted for it. He was persecuted for it. Some, sometime in the 1560s, he was arrested shortly after his own adult baptism, his rebaptism, 
because he had been baptized as an infant and now as an adult believing in Christ, he was baptized again. Because of that, he was arrested and he was put into prison. In the middle of winter of that year, he found a way to escape. And he made his way out one winter's night from the prison, escaping uh, across the field that was surrounding the prison into the forest. But as he was escaping, he was spotted by one of the guards. And the guard began giving chase, began chasing after him into the woods. And uh, it, was, of course, was the middle of the night. It was very cold on a winter's night. And they were running. Uh, he was running from the guard. The guard was running behind him. And Willems found himself coming out of those woods up to the shoreline of a large pond a frozen pond in the middle of winter, in the middle of the night. He had nowhere else to go. If he would turn around, he would be caught. If he would try to go around the pond, he would be caught. And so with nothing else to do, he decided, I'm going to walk across the ice of this frozen pond. He made his way in the darkness of night across the frozen pond, and he managed to make it to the other side. But just as he comes out onto the solid ground, he hears behind him a large crack and a large splash as the guard who was chasing him fell through the ice. Now you can picture it, right? Willems has just won his freedom. He's basically escaped from prison. Now he has freedom in sight. All he has to do is just keep on running and he would be free. But he doesn't. Instead, he turns around and he goes back onto the ice and he rescues the guard who is chasing him. He saves his life. He pulls him out of the, the icy waters. He pulls, them, pulls him onto the solid ground. And, uh, and as he's doing this, by this point, the other guards have, have arrived and they recapture Dirk Willems and they take him back to prison. And they torture him for having escaped. And later on that spring, in May of, of 1569, they burned him at the stake. Dirk Willems was in sight of freedom. All he had to do was keep on running. But instead, he gave it all away to save the life of his enemy and they burned him at the stake. He gave his life to save the life of his enemy. They burned him at the stake. When I come to a passage like this in Matthew chapter 5, I'm reminded of stories like that of Dirk Willems. And I'm also reminded of another story from our own tradition here in the Wesleyan Church. It goes back to the year 1847. In 1847, a congregation of Wesleyan Methodists living in North Carolina in pre-Civil War, pre War South had requested for uh, a, an anti-slavery preacher to lead their congregation. Their own congregation, their own pastor was beginning to preach against the abolitionist movement. He was in favor of slaves. And so this group of people left that church and formed this new congregation in the pre-Civil War South. And they requested from the North that they would send them an anti-slavery preacher. 
Adam Crooks was a young 23-year-old living in Northeast Ohio in that year of 1847. And at the young age of 23, he answered the call to go and lead this congregation in North Carolina as an abolitionist preacher, an anti-slavery preacher in slaveholding South. As he arrived, this new congregation was established and they named their church Freedom's Hill. Freedom's Hill because it stood for freedom for the slave and the sinner alike. The original building of this church is still standing. Uh, if you wanted to see it, you could go to the campus of Southern Wesleyan University where they've uh, restored it and they've moved it to their campus. The congregation here at Freedom's Hill gained uh, a reputation for its anti-slavery preaching. Its anti-slavery preaching and ministry. Again, it stood for freedom, from uh, freedom for slaves and sinners alike. And as the pastor of this congregation, Adam Crooks, paid a high price for his preaching. He was dragged from his pulpit many times and thrown into prison because of his anti-slavery preaching in the slaveholding South. Twice, on two occasions, he was poisoned. He survived an assassination attempt where a group of men were ready to ambush him and he escaped. The bullet holes can still be seen on the church building even today as the neighbors of this congregation shot up their church building. You can still see the bullet holes in the door. But for Adam Crooks and his people, they kept coming back. They kept on preaching. They kept on serving. They continued to love and to pray for the, those around them, their, their neighbors who hated them. They kept coming back. And I, I wonder again with this story, in light of this gospel, what is it that compels people like Adam Crooks and Dirk Willems to such radical love like that? For Dirk Willems to turn back and to abandon his freedom in order to save the one who is chasing him, to save the life of his enemy. Or for Adam Crooks to continue to preach and to continue to serve his neighbors, even though his neighbors tried to kill him on multiple times, multiple occasions. What drives Christians to love their enemies so much, even at such an enormous personal cost, even at the cost of their own safety or at the cost of their own lives? What drives Christians to such love? Well, this morning we, we see uh, that we are uh, here in the last installment of our theology of love. For the last several weeks, we've been discussing this. What is love? What is a theology of love? Exploring the nature of love, the source of love. How do we love as God loves? And we've seen how the virtue of love is the primary fruit of the Holy Spirit and how all the other virtues, all the other fruits of the Spirit flow from love. They radiate from love. And we've seen how the source of love is God himself. When we were looking at 1 John chapter 4, in 1 John 4, 7, it says that love is from God. Love is from God. It is a part of God's very nature to be love. God is love. And we talked about how God can be loved because he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for all of eternity, the Father has been loving the Son, and the Son has been loving the Father and the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between them. 
So God in his very nature is love, but God also shows us his love in his actions, most chiefly in sending us his son as the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And then last week we saw how Jesus says that the greatest commandment is love. Out of all those 613 commandments in the Old Testament, the greatest commandment is love. They all, all these other commandments, 613 commandments, all can be summarized by love. They all point back to love, the love of God and the love of neighbor. The path of holiness is love. And now this morning, we come to see the full extent of that love. The fullness of love, you could say, the climax of love. What it really means to love as God loves. In the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And we see uh, the Sermon on the Mount stretching from Matthew 5 into Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. And here we are in the middle of of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is gathered with his disciples on a mountain. At the beginning of chapter 5, we see Jesus withdrawing from the crowds in order to go on to this mountain. The crowds have been pushing him and surrounding him, and, and he's trying to escape from the crowds. As he, so he goes onto this mountain for solitude and isolation, but his immediate disciples follow him, and they come near to him, and as they're there with him, he begins to teach them. And he begins to teach them the ethics of the kingdom way of life. What does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? As the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, as Jesus has said from the beginning of his ministry, behold, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. What does it mean to live as a citizen of God's kingdom? And so Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, has been sharing some radical teachings with his disciples here. And you notice a pattern as, as you read, especially Matthew 5, where Jesus will say, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say unto you, dot, dot, dot. It's an amazing pattern that you, you see as you read chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus has been sharing some very radical teachings with his disciples here in this chapter. And these are difficult teachings. These are hard teachings. These are inconvenient teachings. 
In fact, I, I find it interesting what the commentator R.T. France says of this passage. He says, the purpose of the whole discourse so far has not been to provide a suitable ethic for getting along all right in the world, but to challenge those who have accepted the demands of the kingdom to live up to their commitment by being different from other people. To challenge those who have accepted the demands of the kingdom to live up to their commitment by being different from other people. See, it's not so much about how to have a decent life. This passage is not about how to have your best life now. This passage is not about how to have a good life. It's, it's not easy what Jesus says. The things that Jesus says will make life significantly more difficult. The things Jesus says in this passage will make our lives a lot harder and a lot more inconvenient. This is not your conventional wisdom. The life that Jesus is outlining here on the Sermon on the Mount is a life that does not draw from conventional wisdom or what most people do or what makes sense to our culture and our society, but it, it takes its standard from God himself. The things that Jesus says in this passage don't make any sense to people who are in the world or to those of us who are so saturated in the culture of the world. The things that Jesus says, if you were to put them into practice, they would make your life a lot harder in a fallen world. But the things that Jesus says in this passage really do come from God. This is the way of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like, the kingdom that's breaking into this world. This is what it looks like to live as a citizen of that kingdom. The things that Jesus says here take their standard from God himself. It's not a teaching, about, it's not a teaching of, of practical wis, wisdom or pragmatic wisdom, but it is a reflection of the character of God himself. A reflection of the character of God. And we see this especially in verses 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. You hear it there? So that you may be sons and daughters, children of your Father who is in heaven. And this really goes back to what we've been saying in the last several weeks, doesn't it? The, the fundamental problem with humanity is not the problem of sin. And we talked about this quite a lot, I think, last Sunday. The fundamental problem of humanity is not simply the problem of sin. Rather, the fundamental problem of humanity, humanity goes deeper than that. It is the fundamental problem of the distortion and the loss of the image of God. See, it's a deeper level than just the outward expressions of our sins. It's actually a condition of our hearts that is the deeper issue. The fundamental problem of humanity is the distortion and the loss of the image of God. It's the disorientation of the human heart. We have to go back to the beginning, don't we? In the beginning, when God created us, he created us in his own image. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. 
The passage we heard last Sunday. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created them. But through sin, that image in us was broken and distorted. And in some ways, it was utterly destroyed. There was a loss of the image of God within us. And the whole rest of the Bible, then, is God remaking his image in us. From the moment we see the image of God utterly destroyed within us, God has begun his process of remaking his image in us. And what is his image? The image of love. The image of perfect love. Whereas now on this side of sin, we no longer love as we ought to love. There is no longer that harmony that we had at the beginning. There is now disharmony between us and God. There is now disharmony between us and one another. There is now disharmony between us and the created order. And if you doubt any of that, just look around and you'll find it. Turn on the television, you see it. There is this disharmony between us and between us and God. The whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to give us teachings of pragmatic wisdom or how to get along in the world or how to have a decent kind of life. No, it, it's really meant to show us the image of God. What does the image of God really look like? It looks like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. Jesus, in his teaching here, is trying to teach us how to be like God again. How to look like God again. How to reflect the image of God again. And that means that most of the things that, that you see here in the teaching of Jesus, most of these things will be at odds with the world around us. They won't make sense to the world around us. They will be at odds with the conventional ways of thinking. And why? Well, we see it in verses 43 and 44 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because this is what God looks like. God looks like this. Whereas in our, our human culture, in our human level, we look at our enemies and we, we hate our enemies. We, have, uh, we, we dislike our enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies because God loves his enemies. In verses 45 and 46, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is what God does. People who hate God, God still gives them rain. People who dislike God, God still gives them his sunshine. He still causes the crops to grow. He still sustains them. He still gives them life. He still gives them air to breathe and water to drink. This is God's benevolence toward those who, who hate him even, who are enemies of him. 
he continues to seek their good. And this is what Jesus calls us to, to seek the good of our enemy. Even though it doesn't make sense, even though this isn't a practical way of living, even though, like Dirk Willems, it might cost us our life, or like Adam Crooks, it might cause us a lot of pain. Jesus says, seek the good of your enemy. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Seek their good. Dorothy Day, a famous author, Christian writer from the, 19th, uh, from the 18th, uh, 20th century, sorry. Dorothy Day says, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Think about that. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Think about the person that comes to your mind when you hear those words. The person we love the least, that's the extent to which we actually love God. And so Jesus here is very right when he says, I say to you, love your enemies. Not just your neighbors, not just your friends, not just those who are a part of your circle, but love those who are outside of that circle. Love those who want to cause harm to your circle. Verse 46, for if you love those who only love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others do? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, it comes back to the image of God, doesn't it? We are to reflect God. We are to look like God, even in our fallen world. So where do we start? Where do we start with all of this? Well, I think Jesus is putting us on the right track here when he says, pray for them. Pray for them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. You might have disagreements with them in very serious and intense ways. Maybe they're even out to cause harm to you. Pray for them. And how much do we need that in our country this morning, in this week? with all the fighting and all the disagreement and all the dysfunction and disharmony. When's the last time you prayed for the other side? When's the last time you prayed for the person who called you something bad on Facebook or the person who's outside of your circle? And then we can show kindness to them. We can actually help them in their times of need. But ultimately, I think loving them is a gift of God. This is, again, back to verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is grace. We can't do this, can we? Not by ourselves. But what Jesus commands here, he expects to be fulfilled. And so what Jesus commands here is actually a promise that Jesus is making. If we allow him, God will make us like himself, if we allow him. And so this verse calls us to ask God for this gift. 
to ask for this grace, to pray for this grace, and then to receive it when it comes. Dirk Willems and Adam Crooks and all the other saints that we see throughout the history of the church, they came through this process of becoming like God. It wasn't made in a day, it didn't happen overnight, but it's this long process, this long daily habit of love. That's what we're called to. That's what Christ invites us into, a life that is cultivating a habit of love. And so my prayer this morning, and I hope it becomes your prayer as well, comes from that old hymn, Breathe on Me, Breath of God. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. And do what thou wouldst do. Friends, as you go out this week, may you be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. May he reshape your heart. May he refashion your love. May he open you up that you may show love even to your enemies. Thanks be to God. Amen.